0: Lovely to be with you. Uh, as was stated earlier, my name is Matt Wormsley. Uh, my day job is that I'm senior minister of Maybridge Community Church down in Worthing. Uh, so just visiting today. Um, and I'm a really big fan of your minister, Chris Porter. He's fantastic, isn't he? Yeah. Yes, three people think so. Um, so. I have this thing with Chris. That I think, um, I don't know if you've thought this, right? Between his sort of shock of bright hair, uh, his very tangible private school background, and he's a. <laughs> His ability to talk as if he knows what he's doing, but you're not really sure. He's reminiscent of a certain former prime minister. I'm not going to mention names. Paul Liz Truss. Uh, uh, it's a different one. Anyway, um, so I love this series that you're doing. Stop going to church. Probably no church in the country is using that title for their series. I wouldn't imagine. Um, and uh, if you're visiting yourself today, uh, like, like I am, or if you're not somebody who's a follower of Jesus yourself, No pressure on you uh, at all. But what we're going to do this morning is talk about a picture of what church is supposed to be like, that comes from the New Testament. Uh, And more than that, I think it shows us what God is all about, even more importantly. And we're going to look at the idea that church is a bride. Right? Church is a bride. Now that might sound a bit strange to you, especially if you you know, you might be a bloke and you think, you know, hold on mate, how can I be a bride? I'm not a bride. But there is an idea that runs through the Bible of an eternal marriage between Jesus, who is God become a man and his people, the church, and that's us. And it's a beautiful thing. Right from Genesis at the beginning to Revelation at the end, there's this idea of a coming wedding of him and us being brought together in this unusual to us, but very special way. And so we're going to look at the big story to see one why it's brilliant news. And two, what on earth it actually means for life today. We're going to get at this question. You know, you'll be asking this once we sort of get through this. All this God and marriage stuff sounds fascinating. But when I'm at work on a wet Thursday, what difference does it make to my actual life? Now, to understand this well, we have to think about how Jewish culture understands marriage. Of course, we live in a time and place where what marriage actually means is very much up for grabs. We know from experience and statistics that marriages sadly come and go. You can get married at very short notice. And for many people, let's be honest, in our culture, marriage is little more than a piece of paper and a party. But that's not how it was for the Jews who wrote the Bible. That's not how they saw marriage. So I'm going to walk you through to begin with five stages of ancient Jewish marriage. Right? I promise you, this is really interesting. You can tell me afterwards if it's not. I promise you it's really interesting. These are the five stages of Jewish marriage. Firstly, you'd have the shiddachin or arrangement. This is what would happen. The bride's dad and the groom's dad would be matchmakers. The the bride and groom might not even know each other. Imagine that. Sometimes they wouldn't even have met before the marriage, which sounds like something Channel 4 would make a series out of. (laughs) But this was different. The bride would normally get the right to veto the whole thing if she wanted to, which stands out when you think about how in many cultures that would not be the case. The groom would also be expected to pay a dowry to purchase his wife, which may sound very antiquated and sexist to us. That's what they did. But it was more an expression of how he valued her, because of course, she could just say no anyway, that was allowed. So that's the first thing arrangement. Then you'd have the ketabah or contract. There'd be a written contract or covenant paid for by the groom and it would list all the responsibilities of both parties. Everybody had to agree. And this was a key part of the marriage. Then thirdly, you'd have the irusin or betrothal and the bride and groom would take part in ritual cleaning in water to symbolise a spiritual cleaning. Then there'll be a ceremony with vows and rings. And then finally a shared cup of wine, lots of drinking and all this. At this point, the couple would be legally married. But here's where it gets interesting. They wouldn't live together yet and they wouldn't sleep together. They would both continue to live with their parents for around a year. Imagine once you were betrothed, you were legally married and you would need a divorce if you were going to end things at that point. And then after all the ceremonial stuff, there was a feast, and then everybody would just go home for a year-ish. And during that year, there was plenty of stuff to do. The groom would be expected to build a place for them to live, either a brand new house or an extension on his parents' house. The bride, on the other hand, would be observed for her purity. The aim was that she would distract herself from any relationships or activities so that she was totally available to the groom. She would also make her own wedding dress with the aim, of course, of being as beautiful as possible when the time came. Then four, you'd have the Nisuin or ceremony. After about a year, it was about a year, the bride would be waiting, knowing the groom could show up any moment. Late in the evening, she would probably be burning oil lamps, staying up with her friends just in case it was wedding time. You see, the date was unknown. Even the groom didn't know. It was the groom's dad who had announced the ceremony when he thought it was the right time. So basically, everybody had to sort of be on standby just in case a wedding happened like that. If someone asked the groom, oh, mate, I'm, uh, I'm just looking at the diary. Uh, I don't know how you're fixed for October. When's the wedding? The groom would have to say, nobody knows the time except for my father nobody knows when his dad eventually decided it was time the groom and his friends would all go to the bride's house could be any hour of the day and his friends would shout behold the bridegroom comes and they would blow a trumpet called a shafar and then with the bride they'd all go back to the groom's house where the wedding canopy would be then you'd have another ceremony the vows made a year early would be completed more wine of course right after the ceremony The bride and groom would go off and consummate the marriage. And everybody knew that was happening. And then that was it. Then then they would live together and sort of get on with life. But then fifthly, you'd have the Sedawat Nisween or feast. And the wedding feast was the highlight of the whole thing. Seven days of food and dancing and music for the whole community. Right at the beginning of the feast, it was all about honouring the groom. The guests were expected to bring poetry and and songs about him very un-British. Can you imagine us doing that? (laughs) No. (laughs) Then the groom was supposed to show off his new wife, share her beauty with everybody present and everybody would celebrate. So basically, there was quite a lot to it. As you can tell, I've just given you the headlines really. The thing is, when you're aware of some of this stuff, it really helps with understanding a lot of the stuff the Bible says about Jesus and how he relates to us and what it means to say that the church is his bride, so to speak. All five phases I just told you come through in the Bible. Firstly, we said there's the arrangement. The big story of human history is that God the Father in a sense arranged a marriage between Jesus's son and the church. It's this great cosmic love story. In the time of the New Testament, basically everybody knew all the marriage stuff I just explained that was normal life. Around the time Jesus began publicly teaching and healing people, his cousin John was already quite a prominent figure, a respected teacher. But Jesus was starting to become more well known than John. Look at this. This is from John's Gospel, chapter three, is a different John that wrote this, uh, where some of John the Baptist's followers come to him and ask him what's going on. And he says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, And it's now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. John has a really good grasp of what's going on. He talks about Jesus in marriage terms. People come to him and say, John, who who is this guy? Do you know? And John's reply is basically to say, I'm the sidekick. I'm the wingman. I'm not the great figure promised by the Old Testament that we're all waiting for. That's not me. He sees himself as more like the best man at a wedding. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. He's saying, I'm not the groom. There is a wedding taking place, but I'm not the groom. And he sees that God has arranged for Jesus, the groom and his people, the bride to be joined together, to be married. And John knows, right, I've just got to step into the background and the spotlight beyond that relationship. The arrival of Jesus into the world means the marriage is on track. There's even a dowry. In 1 Corinthians, the author Paul reflects on what Jesus did on the cross and says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. The language of being bought has lots of meanings, but one of them is that it ties in with the marriage tradition. God wanted us we end up eternally married to Jesus and yet he's also, he's the dowry. He's the payment made to get us. The arrangement's already done. Second thing we said as a contract, the contract is important because that makes it legal and permanent and secure. Now, in one sense, of course, we don't have a written contract of the great marriage of Jesus and the church, but God's promises demonstrate his commitment. The Bible, you could say, is his love letter to his bride, jammed full of promises. Here's one, just one example. In the Old Testament book of Hosea, when God speaks to his people who've turned away from him, he says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. It's deliberate that he uses the word. Betroth. I will betroth you to me. That's God in this, in this verse saying, I'm making a commitment to you. I'm sharing it on the record. Whatever you do, whatever you're like, I'm committed to you. We're contractually tied together because I, I love you so much, I'm just going to commit myself in. That's what I'm doing. So there's the contract. Thirdly, the betrothal. Now, because we're contractually married to Jesus so to speak right now right in this life right now we're in the betrothal phase the formality of marriage is done and dusted it's agreed it's set up it's permanent now we're waiting for the groom to reappear we're like we're in that in between year that we talked about just just preparing for the ceremony and the feast when people become Christians what do they often do they get baptized What's that about? It's an outward sign of an inner cleaning, just like the bride would make every effort to be cleaned up before her husband came back. But it goes even deeper than that. In Ephesians, a New Testament letter about the church, it says these words, husbands love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. This call for husbands to love their wives doesn't come from nowhere. It's modelled on what Jesus does for the church that comes first. While we're in the betrothal phase, the idea is that we, we become cleaned up and purified, ready for the big day, the big ceremony. But the thing is, of course, we can't clean ourselves up. So guess what? Jesus makes us clean. In an unprecedented move, the groom cleans up the bride ahead of the final ceremony. That's not how the tradition went, but it indicates how much love God has for us. Jesus makes us a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. On our own, this doesn't happen. On our own, we're we're dirty and wrinkled, blemished all over, about as holy or special as a bucket of mud and we're to blame for all sorts of mess, but there's no need to be, to be concerned. Jesus has made us a worthy bride for himself. Look at that phrasing. He does this to present her, the church to himself. No groom wants to be presented with a bride who doesn't look as good as she can be. Jesus has a vested interest in presenting us as beautifully as possible because he's the groom and more than outer beauty, He presents every part of us as gorgeously as it could possibly be done. And it's not just the cleaning of the bride that Jesus arranges. In John 14, Jesus speaks to his disciples just before he dies. And he says this, and again, it's just wedding language. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. Like any good groom, Jesus has made sure there is room for his bride in his dad's house. Actually, it's lots of rooms. There's a place for all of us. At his end, everything is ready. At our end, everything is ready because he sorted it out. And so this is the the, sort of the phase we're in, the betrothal phase, when we're getting cleaned up, when our lives are being changed as we look to him and we wait in with anticipation because the groom is definitely coming back for us. Fourth thing, the ceremony. Remember the groom comes back unannounced in the Jewish wedding. In Matthew 24, when Jesus speaks about what will happen in the future, including his return, he says, but about that day or hour, no one knows not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Even Jesus, when he said these words, didn't know when it was going to happen. Only the Father knows, but it will happen. The groom will return. There'll be this great ceremony. At the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation paints a picture and you have to remember this is a book of wild imagery and strange descriptions, but underneath it tells us some incredible stuff about God. And in Revelation it says, There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. One day, there'll be a new heaven and earth. Right now, they're different places. One day, they'll become the same place. And you have this thing where strange thing, the holy city comes out of heaven and that's less about a physical city and more about the people of the city collectively. The glorious bride bought by Jesus, made clean by Jesus, with places and rooms prepared by Jesus, beautifully presented to him. And when this incredible cosmic ceremony happens, God will be fully present with us all the time, like a bride and a groom who finally move in together and there will only be good. Death, mourning, crying, pain, all become past tense. They're gone. This is our happily ever after. The destination for every one of God's people is this. It's what we long for. It's what we're designed for. It's what every one of us wishes deep down the world was like every day and one day it will be. These words in Revelation that sound so surreal were written for Christians who were facing a lot of real life pressure and stress. Maybe that's your life right now too. And I would not want to minimise that. But let's also let the future shape our perspective now. You are, if you're a follower of Jesus with the rest of us, the bride of Christ. And this is what's coming for you. Finally, we talked about the feast. Another part of Revelation talks about this coming great feast. Everything's going on, there's this eternal epic marriage. You've got to have a feast and it's going to be the greatest feast imaginable. No gluten free stuff nothing processed, just the best feast ever. And it says, hallelujah, for our Lord God, almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb." And he added, these are the true words of God. Now, Jesus in this passage is sometimes called a lamb because lambs were sacrificed. That was part of the culture and he was sacrificed for us. Hence, he's a lamb, but he's also the groom. And the final feast happens. Note note this, it's in the father's timing, but when the bride is finally ready, but she hasn't made her own clothes. She's given them fine linen, bright, clean, not marked or blemished by sin, but clothed in the good that God has done in his people. And this feast at the end of time is a wedding supper. If you've ever been to a wedding supper, a wedding breakfast, whatever we call it, they're great, aren't they? You get all the best food, loads of stuff, celebration. Everybody's delighted to be there. Everyone's pleased. The bride and groom have finally got together for good. The feasts that we go to in this life are a little taste of what this great feast is going to be. So, we've sort of rattled through this, but I hope it's given a sense. The story of the church, the story of you and me, is we're a bride who has been bought, to whom God is committed. And one day we'll be in a great marriage ceremony with a feast. Right now, we're in the middle of the betrothal phase while we get cleaned up and get ready to be presented. What a wonderful thing. I said at the beginning, this is going to create a question for us. Okay, this marriage stuff sounds quite interesting. I hope it was interesting. I think it's interesting all very interesting. But when I'm at work on a wet Thursday, what difference does it actually make to my life? A couple of things before I finish. Firstly, God's commitment to us is much deeper and richer than we realise. If there's anything to be joyful about, anything to overcome the, the day to day frustrations or sadness that you may have in life, it's this. For some of us, maybe we go through life wishing more people or maybe even just one person was deeply committed to us regardless of what we're like. We all want that, surely. Maybe, maybe you're somebody who wants or has wanted to be married, for example, and it never quite happened and that's quite difficult. Maybe you are married and you know that your marriage doesn't meet all of your needs. No, no, no earthly marriage does. Or maybe you just feel isolated in some way and like you're not anybody's priority. Jesus has already committed to eternal marriage with you. He's already there and he's the best groom. We're just in the betrothal stage. There might be others of us who just think, well, I'm, I'm just too bad. I'm too bad. I'm, I'm too indifferent to God. I'm, I'm an unfaithful partner in this great marriage. And so we feel guilty and we know that we need to change. Well, through Jesus, you're counted as clean and you will be fully cleaned up one day. He does it, not you. And so you can live now knowing the God of the universe is totally, unswervingly, continually committed to you. He loves you personally enough to commit to you, even though you want to opt out half the time if you're honest, at least half the time. Second final thought, we're betrothed to Jesus and the point of life is therefore to be prepared for the wedding day. God found his son a bride. Jesus paid the dowry for us. The vows are done. He's got a room for us. He makes us clean. We're now preparing for the day when the trumpet sounds and the final ceremony happens and the greatest feast of all begins. What is there to do for the rest of our lives? Only this, prepare for the wedding day. When you prepare for an earthly wedding, you make yourself look as good as possible, don't you? Nice clothes, maybe you try and lose a bit of weight, get your hair done, lots of intricate makeup. These are all the things I did when I got married. Um, Such an easy laugh that one, isn't it? (laughs) Getting churches to laugh, very easy. Now, if Jesus has cleaned us up in his sight and is doing the work of changing us in this life now, what do we do? How do we get ready for the big wedding day? We partner with him in that change. We don't pursue outward beauty, but the inner beauty of character growth. We, We live based on what God says. We commit to a church. We said, no, not going to church. No, we commit to a church. It's more than going and we expect that he will clean us up over time. Basically, we do the Christian life, but with a particular eye on what's coming. One of the early church leaders, a guy called Paul, saw it this way. He wrote to the Colossians that his goal, you know, he gave his whole life to do Christian work and he said his goal was to present everyone fully mature in Christ. To present everyone fully mature in Christ. He saw the coming wedding and he wanted to help prepare people to be presented to the great groom when we talk about church and what it means to be involved, this is what it's about. We're saying, I'll be committed to these people in this time while we help one another be presented fully mature before Christ. That's one way of describing what church is. It's far more than services and structures and programmes and really good TVs. So let me encourage you as an outsider, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, properly commit yourself to God's people. Whatever that looks like for you right now. It's not who puts in the most money or gives up the most free time. It's a heart thing. Commit yourself because there's a a connection between committing to one another and the sense of joy that you will draw from it. And it'll be great news for Andover. And the more you, you know, the more you do, you're going to represent Jesus really well to this town as his bride in this place at this time. But let me end on this. We don't grow and pursue God and his will together in a vacuum. We do it because it has a purpose. Because one day we will all enjoy this final wedding ceremony where we're joined to him forever as his bride and partner. We do it because being relentlessly loved by our creator is the thing that actually we all seek, whether we know it or not. And getting ourselves ready for him to come back and take us to his father's house is a privilege and a joy. God loves us so much, alone and together, so much that he chose us as a bride for his son. What a joy to take our part in preparing ourselves for that great wedding day. Will you be ready? Will you be part of a people that is getting ready for him to come back and take you home?